Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live. But we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good evening. Good to see you guys. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here at Cross Creek. And we just want to say thank you to those of you who are here maybe for the first time, maybe second, third time. If you're new, we're just so glad you're here. Uh, basically, we want to prove how glad we are that you're here by giving you something. The best way we could think of to give you a gift is actually the card in the seat in front of you. It's a, a red welcome card. You fill that out, some really easy information about yourself, and then after the service in the lobby at the info table, you can give that card to the person behind the table, and they will give you a free gift. Sound good? Cool. Hey, also, uh, Cross Creek, um, we're, we designed this church to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And uh, I think often, often, and we're going to talk about this in this series, and I'm going to get to all that in a second, but uh, often the church is known for what it's against instead of what it's for. And so we've decided that we want to be a church that's known for what we're for. And we are for Salem. We believe God loves Salem, God is for Salem, and so we want to be for Salem as well. And so every month we have an opportunity to show Salem that we are for them. And whether you are new or whether you've been here for the last two and a half years, you can be a part of showing people that you are, that we are for Salem. And this month is a, an opportunity to tell teachers that we are for them. Whether it's an actual classroom teacher, whether it's somebody that's helping your kids right now learn about how much Jesus loves them, whether it's somebody who's mentored you in your life, you can thank a teacher. And so uh, at the info table, also after service, we have some thank you cards with um, a card, an envelope, and then a For Salem or a For Kaiser, we're not forgetting you guys, a For Salem or For Kaiser card that you can just write a handwritten note saying, thank you for everything you've taught me, and you know something more heartfelt than that, and then put in that card and tell them, hey, thanks for being For Salem by being for the people that you have taught, including myself, okay? So those are a few things I wanted to tell you about, and we... Um, I think I should also say welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thank you for watching. We're glad that you are a part of this wherever and whenever you're watching. And, um, you know, questions. We all have questions, don't we? That's what we're, we're doing a So What About series. We did this uh, this time last year. So this is So What About 2.0. All right, so we're kind of bringing back some questions, asking some new questions. And I think it's important because... We, the reason we're doing this two years in a row, doing like a sequel, basically, is because questions are important. We all have questions. We all have, and we might not admit this, especially in a church, but we all have doubts. And here's the thing, doubts, questions are good. Questions and doubts are normal. Doubt is a part of being human. You know, if we didn't have questions and doubts like, can I eat this? we wouldn't still be here, would we? Right? What does this taste like cooked? That was a good question. Hey, that looks spiky and pokey. I doubt I can eat that. You see how the doubts and questions are good? 
Just this primal things like that. In fact, asking questions really is an important part of growth. Think of if you've had kids or you've been around kids. I have three young kids. Our oldest is seven. Questions are a part of growth, aren't they? They're important. Dad, why do, why do, uh, you know, why do snakes, why can't they fly? I don't know. Well, Dad, ask Siri, right? That's what they always tell me when I say I don't know. Like, well, you have to be able to search it for yourself too, guys. Or, you know, Dad, where do babies come from? I know. I said, Mom's tummy. Okay, good. And they moved on. It was, it was very relieving. You only have to tell them so much at certain ages, guys. You don't have to tell them everything right away. But see, questions, doubts, they're important. They're a part of growth. And that's especially true with spiritual growth. In fact, if you think about your, your spiritual past and your, kind of the journey you've been on, Doubt has been an important part of it. In fact, doubt is often a catalyst for deeper, more complete, and more, a more genuine spiritual life. If you think about that, doubt, questions, is often a catalyst, something that, you know, it, it spurs growth. It spurs a crea- creation almost of a deeper, more complete, and more genuine spiritual life. I know for me, every milestone I've had in growing closer to God, growing, knowing more, uh, trusting him more, uh, growing spiritually, has always had a time marked with some doubts, with some questions. Is there really a God? How do you know? Right? Instead of just my parents telling I grew up, my dad was a pastor, so I grew up in church my whole life. Instead of just people, all the adults around me telling me there's a God, how do I know for sure? Right? Those types of questions spurred me to go and find answers so that no longer is it just something somebody told me, it's something I found on my own. It becomes more a part of my belief. And so my, my spiritual life was able to grow and mature because of doubts, because of questions. But often, the place people turn to find insight, to find answers to life's biggest questions often sees honest doubt, often sees hard questions as dangerous. Even wrong, or a word that, you know, these places like to use, sinful. That's right, the church. See, the church is often defensive or even hostile when it comes to asking hard questions. In 2009, there was a, 2011, there was a survey done of uh, people who, who grew up in in the church world, grew up going to church, their family were, were Christians, that type of thing. And uh, one-third of people from the age 18 to 29, one-third of them said, who had a Christian background, said, I don't feel that I can ask my most pressing life questions in church. Isn't that crazy? The group of people who say, we have the answer to life, makes one-third of the kids who grew up in their walls with their families feel like they can't ask the questions about life. And so people are left hanging. They're left looking for answers, left going on YouTube and trying to find whatever it is that could answer their question. Or, you know, they just give up. They give up entirely and just kind of move on with life, never really having those questions answered, and just be like, well, this is all there is. I'll do whatever I can, and kind of just going day to day and day after day doing the same old thing, right? 
Maybe that's been your experience with, with churches, whatever church you came out of. There's, doubts weren't allowed. Questions, those hard questions that you think, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I can ask this. You weren't allowed to ask that. Maybe that's why you know, this is your, your first time back at a church in a while. Maybe this is why you're watching online and you're kind of afraid to come to a physical location church because you have questions. You're hoping you're going to find an answer, but you don't want to be judged for asking the wrong question. Maybe that's your experience. And I think we've all had that. And I think that's why this, this series is so important. That's why we're doing a sequel of So What About? Because we believe here at Cross Creek that the church should be a place that invites doubt, should be a place that welcomes questions. Because we truly believe that questions are a catalyst for growth, for a deeper spiritual life. And we truly believe that, you know, what the church believes about Jesus is the answer for life. Why wouldn't we want people asking questions? Why wouldn't we want people exploring their doubts so no longer is there scary doubts, but now there's, hey, I, I think I know what I believe for myself. And so in this series, it's going to be a six-week series of so what about questions. We're not going to answer every question you have. Actually, we asked you guys to give us questions, so we, we kind of built this series off of your questions. So if you don't like the questions that we're talking about, it's your fault, okay? So don't blame me when you're like, you didn't answer my... So we're not going to answer every question, but what I want to do and what I hope this series does is create a culture where questions are taken seriously, where questions are encouraged. And hopefully what I think we'll, we'll do when we're done with this is create a framework through which we can search for answers together. Right? There's, we're not going to answer every question, but maybe we can create a framework where we can look for answers together, whether it's in our, in our small groups, our connect groups, or whether it's you know, with the people we came, from, came with, or maybe emailing questions to the church. You can always do that as well. But as we ask questions, here's, here's kind of a, a caveat, if you will. We if we're asking questions, we have to be willing to find, we have to be willing to accept answers. You think, well, of course, right? Why would you ask a question without wanting an answer? You'd be surprised. And it happens often. Asking, but think about it. Asking questions with no desire for a real answer is pointless. In fact, what some people consider the, um, who some people would consider the most, the wisest person to ever live, King Solomon, who's uh, an ancient Jewish king, he actually said this about that idea. Fools find no pleasure in understanding but delight in airing their own opinions. You ever meet anybody like that? Any of you sitting by somebody like that? I'm just kidding, don't do it. <laughs> no nudging. Doesn't that kind of, so fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Did anybody watch the impeachment hearings? So I'll move on from that too. <laughs> kind of, when I read that verse, I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. See, asking questions but refusing to follow where the answers lead, it's really like, like fishing without a hook, right? You're kind of going through the motions, but you know you're not going to catch anything. It's like trying to change the channel when there's no batteries in the remote. It's pointless. You're going through the motions. You're not really looking to change anything. See, questions are supposed to lead to growth, not reinforce our opinions. If you're truly asking a question, you're looking to grow. You're willing to change your mind about some things, not just reinforce what you already believe. Like <laughs> the impeachment hearings. Isn't it true, counselor, that the president is a bad man? <laughs> Isn't it true, counselor, that the president did nothing wrong? Like they're asking questions because they want that, right? Both sides. I hope you're all mad at me now. 
That was the point of that. Because when you get, somebody, you get a group of people to hate one person, then they're on the same, anyway. So, so as we go through this, as you get offended, because that's kind of, you know, getting offended is also part of growth. Right? You're, you're wrong. Awesome. Prove it, right? Here's a ground rule that I think we need to have, and I think this is a great ground rule for, well, for life, really. But here's our ground rule for this whole series. We can disagree and still be in the same family. We can disagree basically about almost everything I'm going to say tonight and still be in the same family. See, in, with, with Christianity, with Jesus, there's, there's hundreds of open-handed issues where it doesn't matter, right? There's, there's, it does, I mean, it's, it's interesting to talk about and it can inform our faith, but there's things that we can disagree on and still be in the same family. The thing we need to, well, we'll talk about in a minute, the thing we need to agree on, but... We can disagree and still be in the same family, especially with what the things we're talking about. And I want you to know, you can disagree with what I'm going to say tonight, and you can still be a full participant in what Cross Creek is doing. You can still be part of a leadership team, of a service team. You can still contribute financially. You can still tell people that you are for Salem, even if you disagree with what I'm going to say tonight. Now, when it comes to searching for answers and asking questions and disagreeing with people, one of the most common questions is about origins. Where we came from? Where did all of this come from? Why are we here? How did it happen? And in the United States, usually we get two answers to pick from, don't we? You get the Bible or you get science. Those are your two options. Where did we come from? Why are we here? You get the Bible that says, you know, God created everything in six days, no more than 10,000 years ago, and everything was created in its current form. There's been no change. You know, the, the earth is as it was when God created it no more than 10,000 years ago. So that's one answer we get to have. Or the other option, which is science, right? The universe exploded from nothing and everything came out of this nothing and exploded into existence about 13.8 billion years ago. And life on Earth, and probably elsewhere, has been evolving through natural processes for about 4 billion years. So we have the Bible or science. And it's presented, us, presented, us, presented to us that way, right? You have the Bible or science. Those are your choices. Pick one. And once you pick, you are now enemies with everyone else who picked different than you. Because those creationists, well, they're superstitious idiots who are ignoring the evidence and are the cause of most of society's problems. So obviously they're your enemy. But those evolutionists are God-hating idiots who are ignoring the evidence and the cause of most of society's problems. You see how that works? We're presented with this, with this war that no matter what you pick, you have to be at war with the other side. You want to know the truth? The war is a myth. There is no war between science and faith. In fact, science and Christianity are not at war. It's a myth. It makes for a good news story or a good you know, newspaper headline. It makes for, for fun blogging throughout the, the internet sphere. But it's not true. There is no war. See, science studies the what and the how. Christianity explains the who and the why. They can actually coexist together. In fact, Christian theology gave birth to modern science. Why? Well, think about it. Christianity is the only worldview, philosophy, or religion that sees the world as having distinct form, 
complexity, and design. So what that means is, if there is a God who created the universe with order and laws, then an experiment that's done correctly today would have had the same results 100 years ago and will have the same results in 100 years because there's order, there's design, it's being held together, there's laws of nature and science. The idea of the universe having laws and being orderly is the basis of the scientific method in modern science. It's that Christian belief that there's a God who created everything on purpose in order that gave birth to the idea that you could actually do an experiment and discover things about nature and the universe. See, science and Christianity perfectly complement each other. There is no war. They go together like a zipper. I don't have a zipper to do, but you're hearing it, right? Okay, good. Now, the usual response when I say something like that, if you're kind of thinking through it, you might say, you know, oh, so they work together, huh? That's cute. All right? Way to totally sidestep the question. So what about, hence the title of the series, so what about the Bible saying that God created the earth, the universe, everything in six days? What about, you know, him saying, you know, the animals are created and the birds are created and the fish are created and people are created fully formed? What about the whole thing about Adam and Eve, right? There's no, like, God created this species that then branched off into monkeys and people, and the Bible doesn't say that. What are you going to do about that, preacher boy? I know that's what you're thinking. You guys are really rude, but it's okay. We'll keep moving on. Well, here's the thing. Let's look at these writings and what they actually say about our origins. And here's what I think we'll discover as we actually look at what it says. The real question is not, the real question that matters, or the question that matters is not, how are we here? The real question really that we need to answer is why? Why are we here? We get so caught up in the how that we forget the real question is why? Now, as we go into the the biblical writings, I need to say a few things first. First off, when we say the Bible says, the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible is not just one book that starts talking to you. The Bible is a collection of writings. Hold on if you're, you know, an old-timey, grown-up-in-the-church thing. I'll get, you'll be safe, okay? I'm not going off the deep end. The Bible is a collection of writings written by ancient Jews and less ancient Jesus followers who we, as, as Christians, believe were inspired by God to write his thoughts, with their personalities, with their education, with their background being fully seen in their writings. It's a collection of a whole bunch of different people writing a whole bunch of different stuff. These writings are not, and their writers never claim that they are, a scientific textbook. Nothing in the Bible says, this is the science of everything, this is the textbook, teach the kids only this. See, the biblical writings are a theologically selective telling of history. Theologically selective, so what it means to know God, theological selective telling of history that focuses on God and humans. That is the main point of what it's trying to do, of what the writers are trying to do. The biblical writings don't tell us everything we want to know about our universe and everything we want to know about history. But they do tell us everything we need to know in order to know God 
and experience a new life through him. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. You can't get to the moon by reading the Bible, right? And that's okay because that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to tell us about God and how he relates with us. And so the first book that we, that we read, the first writing in the Bible that we read is called Genesis, means beginnings. Most scholars believe that a guy named Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that Moses, maybe you've, you've seen the, the movie with Charlton Heston or you've seen the, the cartoon Prince of Egypt, but Moses was um, the leader of the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt, and he was the one that God chose to go rescue them, and he's the guy who said, let my people go, right? He wasn't white, by the way, like Charlton Heston. He was more Jewish-Egyptian looking, but very ancient. And so Moses was the guy who led the Israelites out of Egypt. So these people who had been slaves for hundreds of years, never been a country, never been a nation, there's now hundreds, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who have only known slavery walking to go start a new nation. And they've been rescued by this God who brought different plagues and different miracles like parting the Red Sea and that type of thing. And they don't know who this guy is. There is no the Bible to tell them about God. And so Moses, God, God inspires Moses to tell the Israelites, the ancient Jews, who this God is. And so that's the purpose of him writing Genesis, explaining who this God is that had rescued them and what he was like. And here's how he chose to start off the whole thing in describing who this rescuer God is to the people that God had chosen to rescue. In the beginning... God, the one who you know, moved the oceans and had this pillar of fire, you should read Exodus, it's amazing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Kind of stops there. The general consensus among scientists today is that the universe had a beginning. Call it the Big Bang, right? That's the general consensus among scientists that there, at, at some point, way back in history, something just exploded and started this whole creation of the universe. And for the most part, these scientists agree on what happened up to a fraction of a second after that Big Bang. Right? They, can, they can kind of piece it all the way back to a fraction of a second right after the explosion. But nobody can agree on what happened before the explosion or why there was that explosion. And nothing in the biblical writings disagree with the fact that at some point in the past, everything just kind of exploded and got created, right? There's nothing in that that says, that disagrees with that. The universe has a beginning. That's what Moses said thousands of years ago. So there's agreement, look at that, between what science is saying and what Moses wrote. I hope you guys have a great week. We will see you next week. <laughs> see, you're like, that's nice, but see, the disagreement, that's just the first verse. There's a lot more verses that talk about this creation thing. The, the really disagreement comes from the next 33 verses. And so we're going to pick them apart word for word. Got a few hours. No, but the next 33 verses talk about the six days of creation, right? God, God separates the waters from the earth and calls it land and the sea and light from darkness and the moon and the birds and the, and the fish and all those types of things, ending with the people. Now here's where it gets sticky, Here's where some of you are going to want to argue with me. You can email all questions and arguments to office at Salem Alliance Church. <laughs> they have a larger staff. They can handle it. 
But this is where you're going to want to argue in email, which is fine. You can if you want. I might read it. But just like all literature, there are different genres of biblical writing. See, the biblical writings have history, poetry, they have tax codes, super interesting stuff, philosophy, ancient laws, biographies, travel logs, on and on. Different genres, different, different types of writing. And if you read a genre the wrong way, it kind of gets confusing. Right? If I wrote my wife a letter, which I should probably do soon, Friday is Valentine's Day, everyone. Husbands, okay? If I wrote my wife a letter and I wrote... Your eyes are two gems shining into my heart. And she said, you're a liar. (laughs) That's not true. I can't trust anything you ever say now. Would that be my fault or her fault? Don't ever say it's my wife's fault. (laughs) See, she would be misreading the genre. I was writing beautiful, heartfelt poetry about how her eyes are diamonds that shine into my soul. My heart. Figurative words being used to explain a real point, right? That she has amazing, she's amazing. See, the disagreements with this Genesis account come because some see the, the writings of the creation of the world as factual history. They say, no, the genre is history. It's written as history. And others see it as poetry. Saying, no, it's more, you know, explaining how God kind of loves the world, how he created it carefully, but it's not exactly six days and with the seventh resting. And so, which is right? You ready for this? I don't know. I don't know. Someday, hopefully, we can ask Moses or maybe Jesus who was there. But just so you, you know, you kind of, well, that's kind of a letdown. My conclusion, my personal opinion, you can disagree and we can still be in the same family, my personal conclusion, and the conclusion, conclusion of many that I've read, is that most likely, see how careful I'm being so I don't get the emails? Most likely, because of the flow of the writing and the words used in the original Hebrew, these verses are poetry. That is my opinion. That these verses are poetry used to show the love and the care God used in creating the perfect environment for the creation he loves the most, us humans. See, after God, and and Moses wrote, after, you know, God creates, separates the land from the sea, he looks at it and says, this is good. He creates the birds and the animals. He says, this is good. He creates the trees and he says, this is good. He creates the stars and the moon and says, this is good. What's it good for? God didn't need it. See, the beauty of that is it's good for His last creation that he saved for last, that he says, when I create this, this is very good. Humans. He's saying, I created this good for humans. I created humans on purpose because I love them. It's not saying exactly how he did it, but saying it's giving that, 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 showing the, the love and the care that he used to create us. You disagree with me? Awesome. We can still be friends, we can still go to the same church. It's okay. Because whether the Genesis account of creation is history or not, the point of the creation story isn't how God created, but that he created because he loves us. The whole point isn't how, right? It doesn't say, okay, so when he said, let there be light, he already created the the beams of light to hit our eye, even though it looks like it was billions of years It doesn't say anything like that, right? The point isn't how, the point is why, that he created because He loves us. 
you might say, sure, okay, John, you hippie. It's always about love with you. Now, what about people, right? People, do they come from similar ancestors as the monkeys, or do they come from dust, like the Bible says, pastor? My answer, sure. There's a lot of options out there. Let me give you just a rough overview, because I don't, we don't have the time to sit here and look at every single option about how did people come about. So here's some viable options that you can believe and still follow Jesus. Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve, is completely literal, complete history. They are the first two people created by God. The entire human race descends from them. They are everyone's common ancestor. The difficulties with this idea, with this belief, is that that's not what the scientific evidence is showing, that we all come from the this, this same branch. Another question that this, this idea has is, if they were the only two people, and that's how God created them, why did he create a garden for them to be in? Why did he have to keep them safe in a, in a perfect garden? And if you keep reading Genesis, when Cain kills his brother Abel, how he's afraid that you know, now that he's murdered somebody, every, everybody else is going to try to murder him, and he's worried about going out into the world and people killing him. This is after they get kicked out of the garden. Who are those people he's afraid of? Are they his brothers and sisters, and there's thousands of them? And then he goes and starts a city. Who's in that city? His brothers and sisters or people that were maybe out, outside the garden? I don't know. So there's one totally awesome option. Another option is Adam and Eve are simply literary devices to show us the love and care of our Heavenly Father. They aren't actual people. They're kind of just an example of humanity to show us that our nature really is to run from God and we long for a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The difficulties with this is it doesn't really explain why there is sin in the world, why we have this bent to hurt each other and be selfish. There's, there's some difficulty with transition fossils. Like, how do we see different, you know, animals changing from different things? There's, there's some missing transition fossils. With that, I would say there's also missing T-Rex baby fossils. But we know T-Rexes were babies. We just don't have those fossils. And here's the main difficulty, I would say, for this view that Adam and Eve were just literary devices, which you can totally, it's fine. Jesus himself spoke as if Adam and Eve were real. And as we say, if somebody will predict their death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'm going to believe everything he says. And he said Adam and Eve are real people. So for me, I'll take the Adam and Eve are real people. You don't have to. Here's another option. Isn't this fun? You know what's fun about this? You don't have to do anything yet. You just have to listen. It's like the safest message you've ever heard. Here's another option. Adam and Eve were real people, they, but they were the first evolved homo sapiens to be given a soul. Okay, so they were real, but they, they came out of a long line of evolution and God finally breathed in the soul that, made, that created them in his image. Okay, or final option, this is the one, you don't have to agree with me, this is the one I lean towards because it's just fun to think about, that Adam and Eve were real people. God created him exactly as he says in Genesis. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And then he took the rib from Adam and created Eve. All of that. But while they were in this garden, this protected area, the evolutionary process was going on outside the garden. Who knows how long they were in that garden? Who knows what was going on? I like that one because it's just fun to picture what's going on out there. Now, the difficulties with this one is, so you would, if you've kind of been studying theology and stuff, you'd say, okay, so that, that means that if evolution is going on outside the garden, there is death, 
before Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, now you have to die, right? Because if evolution's going on outside of the garden, that means a lot of things are dying and evolving and, and finding transitions and that type of stuff, right? So that, that is a, a problem. I would say, for, to answer that, because it's my personal favorite and you don't have a microphone, is that maybe the death he's talking about is now they will actually physically die, Right? Who knows how long they were in the garden, how long they were living there until they finally chose to, to sin. And if you're kind of not following what I'm saying because of the whole Adam and Eve thing, go ahead and read it. But uh, maybe their death was physical. Because if you think about it, there was death before the fall because they had to eat the fruit, right? When you eat an apple, it dies. So maybe, I don't know. And when you eat and digest and you keep going through the process, there's microbes that die in that process. So there is some type of physical death. Anyway, okay. Here's the point. You can believe any of these and others and still follow Jesus. It's okay. You can, we can explore and try to find options and see how these all work together. You can believe any of those and still fully follow Jesus. And the argument, again, that you're going to yell at me in your heart is, that's a slippery slope. I mean, you know, you don't believe that. What about the, the whole domino effect, right? If we don't take the creation account literally, we can't trust any of the biblical writings. Why? Why? If I write poetry, I write a poem like, I, you know, I'm, you, you heard, I'm a good poet. Okay? If I write poetry, and then because, you know, I have a history degree, I, I choose to write some history, are you not going to believe the history I write because I previously wrote poetry? doesn't make any sense, right? I'm just writing in different genres. Can I not be trusted because I chose to use a different genre and different writings? Also, I think this is the main thing for this idea, is that the first non-Jewish Jesus followers, they didn't have Moses' account of creation. They didn't have a the Bible to learn about how God created things. For hundreds of years, there was no the Bible for the earliest Jesus followers. Yet they still fully and fully committed to following Jesus. And they changed the world and their lives are transformed. Why? Because even if everything science shows about our origins is accurate, none of it changes the core of Christianity. Even if everything those atheist, God-hating scientists say about science is true, none of it changes the core of Christianity. See, the core of Christianity isn't how God created. The core of Christianity is not the Bible. The Bible existed, or Christianity existed before the Bible. The core of Christianity is Jesus. That is the core of Christianity. That is where we need to agree. The core is the fact that 2,000 years ago, a man claimed to be God. Not just speak for God, not just be from God, but claimed to be God. The God who created everything. A man who said that God is not a distant force or, or an angry or uninterested or unknowable deity, but that he loves us like a true heavenly father the core of christianity is that a, a man said that through him not through his teachings not just his teachings not through what we believe about science and how things happened but that through him you can have a you can have a new transforming life and a renewed relationship with your heavenly father 
And then, like I said earlier, he proved all of it by saying he was going to die and then rise again in three days. And then he actually was killed, dead, and then rose again in three days. And then was seen by hundreds of people. That is the core of Christianity. That God came down as a human. Jesus lived the perfect life and died for us to pay the penalty for our sins and that he rose again, proving that we are forgiven, proving that he has power over death and over sin and proving that he is God. Christianity doesn't rise and fall on whether or not Genesis is literal. Christianity rises and falls on the identity of Jesus Christ. That is the point. The point of Genesis, of this creation account, is not so you can argue with people who think differently than you. The point is to show that there is a God who created you personally on purpose, to show that you are loved by him. You are not an accident. You are known and you are loved. You were created to have a relationship with this God, a relationship Jesus, God the Son, came and died for, a relationship he longs to restore if we will choose to simply trust and follow him. See, God isn't asking that you understand how, every, how everything came to be. He's not saying, hey, totally figure out how I did everything. He's not asking you to do that. He's asking you to understand and accept why he created you. Now, you might be sitting here, you might be watching online, and maybe you're not even sure there is a God. That's awesome that you made it this far. We created this church for you, so you could ask your questions, so you could have your doubts. Here's my advice. Maybe you're not sure there is a God. That's, that's okay. Be open to what if. Don't ask questions just to reinforce your own opinion. Be open to what if. Ask questions and actually try to find an answer. Be willing to change your opinion if the evidence points to that. And maybe try something. It's safe. Nobody has to know you're doing it. But try praying. And it doesn't have to be lighting a candle and closing the door and putting on a shawl or whatever you think it is. No chickens have to be harmed during this process. Just try this. I dare you. Does that help? Pray this. God, I don't know if any of this is real. He's okay with that. He already knows that. God, I don't know if any of this is real. But if it is, if you are real, will you please show me somehow this week? If he's not real, what do you have to lose? If he is real, you have a lot to gain. I don't know if any of this is real, but if it is, and if you are, will you please show me somehow this week? I would think a God who created this entire universe, if he exists, could do something like that. But you have to be willing to look for it. You have to be willing to accept it for what it is. Because here's the thing. Christianity and science are not at war. The two can beautifully coexist. And we may never fully understand how we were made. We may not. We probably won't. But Jesus is proof that we are loved by the one who made us. We might never know how it works. And that's okay. Because that's not the point. The point is, Jesus is proof, 100% proof, 
that we are loved by the one who made us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us know that you love us. Whether that account is a beautiful love poem of how you made us or whether it's true history of the care you took to make us. Thank you for making us. Thank you for making us because you loved us, because you wanted to. You made us to be known by you, to be in a relationship with you, to enjoy you, to enjoy each other. Thank you for all the gifts you've given us. Help us focus on those. Help us focus on how good you are and what you've, what you've done in this world to, to bring us to you. Pray that you give us courage to ask questions, courage to search out answers, and courage to be okay with some doubt. Thank you for being reliable. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you guys have a great week. Next week, doing a fun topic of if there is a good and loving God, why is there pain and suffering? Should be exciting. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.